let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand value time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, I'm Jacqueline LaPointe, Director of Editorial, and this is Healthcare Strategies. Our guest today hails from one of the largest health systems in the U.S., with 52 hospitals, 950 clinics, and 120,000 caregivers. Welcome Dr. Scott Anders, Chief Medical Officer, Value-Based Care and Ambulatory Quality at Providence. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for allowing me to come today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for being here. So Dr. Anders, not only is Providence one of the most prominent healthcare systems in the U.S., but it is also a leader in one of the most systemic shifts in healthcare's recent past, the value-based care transition. Providence boasts 1.3 million lives in value-based care contracts that use quality incentives and risk arrangements across Medicare, commercial, and employer ACOs. I say that is significant, especially considering about 40% of healthcare payments are still fee-for-service across the industry, and most value-based payments are not in risk-based arrangements yet, and that's according to 2021 APM measurement results from the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network. So, are we as an industry where you thought we would be by now with the value-based care transition? And what do you think is hindering some people with that transition away from fee-for-service and into more risk-based arrangements? That is an excellent question. And before I get started, I want to give you just a little bit of history about Providence and our value-based. You summed it up very nicely, by the way. And initially, I know there might be some additional questions about kind of where we're participating the breadth of programs and kind of how long we've been there. And I was going to go back to two decades about some of our full cap products that we've actually been participating in doing very well. And I'm going to go even further back. This is an interesting discovery. Back in the 1850s, Providence was founded by Mother Joseph and four sisters of Providence. They started schools, they started orphanages, and they started some hospitals. But what's interesting, in 1886, they had a well-established hospital, and they also had their first competitor. Now, when we think generation over generation, we typically think that we're more innovative than the prior generations and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And perhaps that's true. Perhaps it's not true. Certainly the pace of acceleration and innovation is accelerating and certainly the awareness of it as well. But when we go back and take a look what actually occurred as they looked through their finances, as they looked at the poor and vulnerable that they needed to serve, they had to get creative. They had to get innovative. And they offered this five to $10, what they call the bond. And the bond allowed the, the kind of the holder to receive free health care within their hospitals and the clinic for that year, five to $10. At that time, the average wage was about $580 on an annual basis. And Seattle back then, remember, was a pretty rough town, logging, so a lot of injuries, a lot of off-work injuries occur as well. And so if we think about today's dollar, $1 back then is about $32 to date. So for the price of $150 to $300, you can get full healthcare services for the year. But what I find innovative about this product, if you think about what it is, it's a full cap model. It's fully delegated risk. They're taking risks for the care. They said, hey, if you pay us up front, they received a kind of stable financial revenue and they generated $3,500 the first year and 7,000. And back then that was quite a, quite a lot of money. And so they generated this income for the hospital and they took on four rest for all the care of the patients. And here's what's also cool. They took it a step further. They even went to employers and said, hey, if you pay for this for your employers, we'll take care of them and get back to you so they can get back to work. So not only did they have an innovative capitative model, they also had a direct to employer 
model as well. So really this history of innovation in some ways is full circle. So again, going back to your question about where are we, especially with the healthcare reimbursement and what's hindering the translation. So I'm going to start with your answer and your questions. Yes and no. Are we where we thought we would be? And so that really is both a yes and no. So before COVID, Providence has been committed to moving the value-based risk. You know, they've been moving towards a diversified revenue stream, looking through digital platforms, obviously taking on, you know, a greater kind of movement within at-risk contracts, moving towards that premium dollar. But again, COVID occurred, right? And aggressively stress-tested all the systems. And it really laid bare. Those that are relying on fee-for-service were hit hard. Those that had capitated or they had some kind of revenue stream from alternative sources, or especially in the value-based world, if they had at-risk or shared savings, they tended to do a bit better. And those with capitated payments, where the payments came up front, they did even better overall. Now, and times were tough for everyone. Even those that had these payments also felt the stress through COVID itself. But where are we today? Are we where we would be? So it's known, yes. So COVID certainly slowed down the progress. There's no question about that as we focused on survival. But it's not intent or interest. It's more pragmatic. You know, the greatest barrier has been workforce challenges. It's finding the MAs and the physicians and it's workforce burnout. So we can build programs to support and care for them along the spectrum, along the continuum, but we still need our caregivers' point of care to help care for our patients at all. But it also means that it doesn't mean we set this aside. In fact, Providence has continued to double down. They've continued to support. We've gone through some aggressive kind of bringing insights into our population overall. In fact, when we think about the revenue streams, one of the questions you asked about where are we in this transition, what's hindering these, one of the greatest advances we've had in the last two years is marrying external data, payer data, claims data with our internal point of care real-time data of Epic and all the other data cloud systems that we have within our system to provide kind of a blended real-time and kind of payer look at the programs that we're caring for across the system. But there's a major challenge with that. And this is that question as what has kind of hindered us. This is a democracy. Our payers have a part in this as well. And so part of it depends on their maturity in this space. Some are incredible partners. They are just willing, they're eager, they're willing to think about new solutions. They're just like, this make this happen because we know if you have this information, our patients are going to get the care needed. Others, there's significant challenges. And when, if you have a total cost of care contract, it's either upside, it's at risk, or if you're moving the premium dollar, not having that kind of real-time data information exchange becomes an incredible barrier to performing the operations, the care that is needed to care for those patients overall. So major lesson learned, when you're going through contract negotiations, when you think about the payers, assess their capability for data transfer, understand who has the strengths or the weaknesses, and build language into the contract. If you're accountable for performance within that contract, the payer has to be accountable for delivering information for you to act on. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like we've we've heard that a lot over the last couple of years that the lag with performance data has been a huge barrier to value-based care in general. So I kind of wanted to pick your brain about what you guys have been doing the last two years with your data optimization, because as you said, it seems like such an important aspect to the value-based care transition. So what have you guys been up to? How are you optimizing data sharing, data analysis? How are you gaining meaningful insights from this information? Yeah, you know, that's an excellent question. And it really is across the spectrum. Part of it is understanding the end user. 
you know, what are the needs of the operators at the end of the day? We have some executive dashboards so we can understand performance. We understand kind of projecting out of where do we think we're going to land. So when we do an analysis of, is this the right contract to move further along the glide path of the risk spectrum? Or how are we performing within our contracts? Where's the current performance? Where we project is going to end of the year? Where do we think if we add additional resources are we going to get to? And of course, it's the operative ones, it's the people who are actually doing the outreach. How do we marry the reports of our internal data with those? of the payers of saying, all right, patients have these opportunities. But it's also along that spectrum as well as performance and reporting. For example, we're actually looking at a third-party vendor. And one of the challenges in the system, whenever you have different systems connecting, one of the challenges is the payers, for example, will know that a mammogram was obtained. They'll have the claim, so they know it actually obtained. But when we send performance reports, for whatever reasons, it's not closed. There's that data fail is sometimes the nomenclature that they use within those systems. Traditionally, we used people to hunt through the chart to try to find these to close those because it helps us, right? It helps us in performance. It helps us financially as we kind of add to that numerator. The patient received the care. We want to make sure we get credit for the care actually occurring. And we know electronic systems aren't perfect. There's a lot of times there's misplacement within the system. Sometimes they go to a general media file. Sometimes they get mislabeled. And so the question is, how do you reduce that kind of hunt time to find those charts? And so there are some companies out there that can use NLP to actually essentially mine your entire data field, find what they consider hits or at least opportunities. So it narrows that search. So instead of taking eight hours, it can take one hour to do the same amount of work. So this is part of performance. It also is an efficiency metric moving forward. The second part is understand performance. For example, in the MA space, you know, marrying our current ability to understand our utilization metrics, either from the payer themselves, when we take a look at our admissions for 1K, when we take a look at, you know, our readmission rates. And how do we marry that to our current performance within seeing the patients, within outreach, within closing the gaps, within, you know, looking at ratios of kind of primary care visits to specialty visits. How do you bring that together across the spectrum of payers into a single source report so we can take a look at and understand where our opportunities are? It really thinks about the data transition and flow. It becomes an in data ingestion method. So Providence has ramped up that particular flow, you know, working again, finding those that are incredibly willing and gracious to work with us and to create kind of the right connection within our system so we can ingest in a format that is recognizable by our systems and can work with the, the information that we have. And then again, working with the other ones as well to bring them along to make sure we can kind of look across the spectrum, the wealth of all of the contracts that we have. And then you get to the kind of the system itself, like the EMR. How do you optimize programs within it? For example, there are systems that can help identify opportunities for document patients' care. How do we optimize within that system? And each system builds based on the different entities that are kind of running its operating system. So how do you focus on that? And how do you help the physicians? Again, it's about helping our physicians and our providers provide the care available. And how do you close that loop coming back? So how do you understand what opportunities? How do you provide the kind of the outreach opportunity list, so to speak? And then how do you help our physicians when they're actually identifying the care themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting too. So you talk about, you know, Prior to some of the stat stuff, you had people mining through charts and all this information to close out stuff. You know, we're talking about how data really optimizes workflows like outreach and stuff like that. But there are real people behind all of these electronic and automated workflows. But at the same time, we're facing pretty significant workforce challenges. And value-based care really depends on the people behind it, right? For a long time, we talked about 
team-based care, making sure you have the right clinicians, the right patient navigators, patient coordinators to help for population health management. So how are you guys sort of addressing those workforce challenges, especially when you're in so many different types of communities? It begins with understanding the needs of your population, and it goes to understanding what your overall strategies. If your overall strategy is to grow within a specific area, do you have the infrastructure support and grow into that area? And it's not necessarily that you have to build a program for those. A lot of times you can enter into a value-based contract or take on kind of additional care, and it can kind of fall into the standard operating procedures. It can kind of fall into your general outreach procedures. You don't need to have kind of additional focus, if you will, overall. But it gets to your point of thinking about the challenges, and it's not about adding bodies. And sometimes you need to. Sometimes you need that that person-to-person connection to create the conversation, especially if we talk about health equity, we talk about outreach. That takes a person. But really, it's the force multiplier of AI or of any other technologies that can leverage the workforce and kind of create these efficiencies so we can do more with less. That's the areas that we're interested in overall. Can you set up systems for automated marketing and outreach? Can you set up systems that can, again, take a look within your data set and look for those opportunities instead of a person kind of mining those overall? Can you link the two together that finds an opportunity and then can kind of create that automated outreach and then ideally, you know, work through the whole scheduling process itself? How do we use technology to help patients access us? Not only just the patient portal, but look at, you know, alternative sites as well, both kind of real lifetime when we talk about virtual options. But also asynchronously, do we take a look at the, you know, how do we bolster our patient portal use? How do we look at outside vendors? There's actually some brilliant vendors that can go through what's called like AI triage. You know, how do we reduce the phone system kind of overuse across the system itself? They'll actually triage and flag if something's a high risk, they'll flag and pop it out to an immediate queue or a call. If it's low risk, they'll kind of walk the patient through the algorithm and kind of queued up into this nice little package in which someone at a later date can take a look, review, and provide the care. That provides patient immediate access anytime, anywhere that they want. It offloads the pressure of the system from an incoming call and allows providers also to take care of populations of, of folks kind of beyond that immediate one-to-one combination. So it really is looking across the spectrum of how can we help our physicians, our support staff take care of more patients as we continue to grow? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been talking about some lessons learned that since you guys have been in this value-based care journey for a long, long time, and I mean, we're talking perhaps the 1800s, but I was wondering if you have any other perhaps lessons learned from this journey that you guys have taken that you can share with other providers who may not be as deep into value-based care quite yet, but are looking to make that transition. This is where I get really excited and happy, right? I've been doing population health for about 20 years and the framework hasn't really changed. And I'm a simple guy. I keep it very simple. And, you know, it's all about from a system perspective, how do we continue to move towards that premium dollar? You know, we should be able to keep what we earn, but we also need to understand the risks that are involved. And for those that are thinking about moving in that direction, there are a wealth of people out there who have been in there where you've actually lost money. And that's a scary proposition. But typically, most well-run programs, you can actually earn kind of, you can earn positive returns. But you just have to understand that maybe once every three, four, maybe five years, there might be a negative return. And you have to have built in the systems that can weather that, can can buffer some kind of reserve or something. So it's not going to hit your finances from overall. Think about it as a health plan. So again, going back to what are the kind of key strategies, I'm a simple guy. I think of nine key strategies 
and three pillars. And, and this is how we approach value-based care. This is not population health, right? Population health is really what we do. Value-based is intentional. Value-based care is a strategy. It's a business choice to get into. And if you get into, you need to have support. So again, these nine key kind of areas, three pillars. But the key though is all of them are focused through the lens of health equity. So think about health equity, you know, kind of the filter for all of these going for. So, and the names have changed over the last 20 years, but really it's the, the content hasn't changed. And I've been able to pretty much plug any program we talk about into these pillars. And it really provides a nice little strategy slash tactic of how you get there. And you can answer the data needs that you'd asked about. You can, you can talk about the resource needs. You can talk about the future as well as you look at these. So the three pillars are what I call pathway to success. Now, this CMS came out with this when they were talking about the glide path towards greater risk. I repurposed it. And then it's really caring for our patients. And then it's, you know, partnerships and collaborations. And so the pathway to success has kind of three elements to it. The first is contracting strategy. This goes to the intentionality. Businesses or organizations have to choose the path that they go towards. I've been in organizations where if a contract's offered, we take it, but there hasn't been any inclusion on the operative side of can we deliver. And again, it goes back to that comment earlier. If it's an upside only and it's really around incentives or, or perhaps something else that you can plug into kind of your general population, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean it's something you should avoid. But if you're taking on, again, you're thinking about going to the ACP land category that you talked about before, you think about 3B or the four, you certainly need to think about how do you actively manage those? And that goes to the infrastructure. But what I like to remember about this, make sure you have the right people as part of the conversations. You know, typically it's finance strategy um, and uh, feel their folks who make the decisions and then the operators are kind of told at the end what contracts you're part of. So make sure that the end users are part of those conversations. Growth strategy is the second part and this can help stand up and support and define your contracting strategy. If you just say, yeah, we want to grow in this space, there's no intentionality to that except for beyond growth. You know, what category are you looking to grow? Are you looking to grow category three and four, which is the shared savings? Are you looking at a particular line of business? You really want to focus on Medicare? You want to focus on commercial? Or is it the Medicaid space and FQHC where that's your area of expertise? So you've got to find what your, your growth strategy, and you've got to support that because the growth strategies are different for each one. And then finance governance and infrastructure. You've got to have programs. You've got to have people that are dedicated and think about this, think about the future, think about how you grow it, and you have to have the support to move forward. So the second part is caring for patients, and this isn't going to be any great revelation for most people. It's closing the care gaps, right? Our preventative and our chronic care and everything, right? This is from roster management. So think about the list you send to the payers. That has to be correct. And think about when it comes back, because these are who, when patients choose you, make sure they're choosing docs who have open panels, docs that aren't, you know, 100% administrative time, because this then affects that sweep through effect affects all your data reporting and requires manual cleanup at the end of the day. And so make sure, you know, at the front end, you, you spend time working on that as well. Um, preventive and chronic, the outreach, the actual closure metrics themselves. And then it's that whole, that whole kind of back end data performance reporting that we talked about. Make sure that you're getting credit for the work that's actually being done. Do you support supplemental data? I mean, this is important for a lot of the payers. And again, it goes back to contract and strategy. Do you have a strategy to actually gather that data and 
transmit it as needed, or if it's part of a contract, again, having the right people at the table when you're negotiating these contracts is really important. But it's not just ambulatory quality, it's also the hospital metrics because they affect everything. And just, you know, take a look at your system. If you take a look at quality, quality pretty much gates, modifies or tiers every total cost of care contract. And while you might not have direct incentives, it does affect your financials. So that's incredibly important to think about. It's obviously the big reason why we're here is to take care of patients and to prevent disease and try to get them back to work, get them back to their families. And then really it's about documentation. This is our opportunity to tell the patient's needs. This is the patient. These are the healthcare conditions that's affecting the patient's health. And this is really up to the physician and the patient having a conversation and agreeing to what those elements actually are. You can create systems and structures to support that and on the back end to make sure that you're meeting documentation requirements and doing everything with integrity and doing everything's appropriate. But we're seeing it's not just in the Medicare space. It's also important in Medicaid and commercials, important for all your patients. Um, and then, of course, cost management. You know, this is an interesting one. And cost management really depends, again, your kind of line of business in your strategy and where you're, you're working towards. Uh, for example, if in the Medicare space, you typically think about kind of long length of stays, you think about your post-acute care, you think about your readmissions. If someone to ask about commercial, I'd be thinking more about pharmacy and referrals management. If I'm thinking about Medicaid, I'd be thinking about really kind of a proactive outreach. Do they know where their medical home is? Do they have understanding that the ED, yeah, it's there for emergencies, but perhaps for primary care, while it's convenient, this gets you into your primary care office. So the strategies Will, will change when you think about utilization management overall. So, you know, closing your care gaps, you document what you're doing and you manage your, your costs across the system, right? It's a continuum of costs. And again, it's not spiraling down. It's not our race to the lowest cost. It's appropriate costs. And sometimes when you think about value, you want to kind of weigh the benefits versus the immediate costs. Sometimes short-term costs are higher. When you think of Eliquis versus Coumadin, when we think of high-dose flu shots, those might cost us as a system a bit more in the kind of cost column, but we know it's better for the right patients. We know it's better for the system and we know that it you know, creates kind of a lower utilization in the long run. And so you've got to kind of walk through those value propositions of what's right for the patient and how can we meet the needs. And finally, it's partnership and collaborations. It's data, 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 data. <laughs> That's the biggest one. You can't have enough data and analytics. And it's not just about acquiring the data to your point earlier. It's about the insights and can you get down to the actionable level? Can you identify what the drivers are so you can address them as a system? That's incredibly important. The second is access. It's the same thing, access, access, access. Patients need to have access. It's not just primary care. It's not the brick and mortar. It's not the face-to-face. -face. Do you have virtual? Do you have asynchronous? You think about bridge care for those that can't get in, but they're either new to your program. They're either transitioning from an ED, from a SNF, or from a hospital care facility. You know, how do you support them in their transition? So access becomes incredibly important. It's also incredibly important when you talk about specialty as well. If you take a look, again, going back to understand the power of analytics, if you take a look at your performance within say, Medicare Advantage, it was not uncommon for 45 to 50% of spend to occur outside your walls. So the question becomes, why is it going there often is specialty and or facility. So if it's specialty, again, specialty access, you know, do you support the specialty and other people having issues or, or troubles? If it's a PPO product, it becomes a bit more challenging. 
um, but it's still something you can address. And then finally, patient experience. We have to work through all this through patient experience. So those are what I call the nine fundamentals and everything can really be put in those again through the lens. But there's also five guiding principles that kind of, kind of come out of this. You talk about lessons learned. But first, again, is understand your core and identify what your core strategies are. Every year, our leadership team gets together. We identify our different areas. We whiteboard it. And from that, we pick what our five to seven core. And we keep that and we keep each other accountable to focus on those. And the reason for that, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to look at these new products. Not that they're not important, but if you don't deliver on the fundamentals, you're not going to deliver overall. If you understand that and you can keep true to that, it helps prevent number two. And that's watch out for the squirrels. They're everywhere and they can distract you from your performance. And then find number three is you can't do it alone. It goes back to that comment about 50% of care occurs outside our walls for some of our contracts. There's kind of two thoughts for that is, do we build or buy, right? If we're creating programs, so we can't do it alone. Is there a vendor that meets the needs like I was talking about looking at NLP to take a look at opportunities, but also where the gap has been closed, it just hasn't been reported. It's in our system, but kind of misplaced, so to speak. And that helps patient care as well, because when the doc's having a conversation, oh, fantastic, it's there. And then we look like we're actually confident because the circle's connected versus the patient saying, well, it was done, they sent it to you, and then we're scrambling to find it. But it's also when we look about care of the patient and trying to understand utilization. So do you think about creating a high-performing network or a clinically integrated network? You know, how do you bring in the right like-minded community physicians to really start caring for extended populations of care overall? The fourth one is really going back to the idiom. When I started, we had, there was a room of physicians and someone came in and I'd never heard this before. And he says, all right, this, let's just talk about cost. What's the most expensive piece of equipment you have in your office or in the hospital? And people are throwing all other kind of things. And he said, no, and he threw a pen on the table. And it's true, the pen is the most expensive kind of piece of equipment we have in our arsenal. And today it's kind of a virtual pen through clicks and typing, but it is. And this isn't to talk about reining in cost, reining in physicians. It's more about including them in the conversations, having physicians at the table when you look at utilization so we can understand. You give docs data, you walk through their questions. You let them understand what's going on, and then you let them drive the results. You let them drive the program. You're going to get where you need to go. So while I think about that idiom, the fact that it is true, there's waste, and I say 25 to 35% of all healthcare is wasted, and someone had to sign that order for it to be wasted. It's more about inclusivity, about bringing the docs in the front line into the conversation. And then finally, pay yourself. Uh, this is incredibly important because if you're creating these value-based programs, create a system how you can actually track the dollars that are tied to your programs. Ideally, you kind of sweep it back into a P&L. It's either pop health or value-based, and so you have the accountability. But it allows you to think from the business, from the mindset of if we expand into this program, how do we actually pay business owner? And you think, is this incremental improvement the right direction for us to move? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a lot of valuable insights here. You've learned some lessons. You've seen some opportunities and you really reach them. So how is that informing your value-based care strategy moving forward? And where do you see more opportunity for value-based care adoption? We currently have uh, contracts with the, the major lines of business, like big health core organizations. We've got our Medicare, we've got commercial, and we have the Medicaid itself. Thinking about contract expansion, either moving one further along the risk pathway or bringing in a new product itself. From an operational standpoint, we view it through the lens of these nine pillars. 
and kind of in keeping the five principles in the back of the mind as we're moving forward. And so this allows us to do the assessment of, are we ready for the next step? Are we ready to move from 3A to 3B? Do we have the right infrastructure and support? Do we have the right information being swept through the system that we can get to our operators to make sure they can identify and care for the patients that need the right level of care? at that opportunity. But ultimately, it's about that premium dollar. Do you keep what you earn? And that's where we move to. We fortunately have the benefit of learning from a small niche, full-risk health plan called Unified Services Family Health Plan. Serves about 20,000 patients. Again, it's full-risk. Serves military dependents, the active duty dependents, and the retirees. The quality is consistently some of the highest. The patient satisfaction is through the roof. And the financial performance is incredible, but it is a health plan. And so we have this rigorous review from utilization management. Um, we, you know, we know who our patients are from a risk identification, risk stratification, and risk support. So the question is, how do you bring that support into a generalized medical group, understanding that, again, you can't scale to the same scale across all the lines of business, and you don't need to. If I have 50,000 commercial at-risk patients, I'm not going to need the same level of scrutiny or care as I will as kind of the elderly if I have a, or if I'm looking at blind and disabled or the D-SNPs, or I'm looking at a Medicaid, particular Medicaid product itself. So understanding how you can bring that to our greater programs overall, I think has been one of the greatest boons from our system overall. And it's really thinking about risk, how you stratify, how you segment, and how you support overall. Absolutely. And as our audience may have noticed, Healthcare Strategies has been focusing on health equity this season. And you even mentioned it, Dr. Anders, that Providence has a huge focus on health equity and value-based care definitely plays a part of that. So I was wondering, how are you specifically addressing health equity in your communities? How does this tie into your value-based care strategy? I love this question. Early in my career, I was part of an FQHC, part of my formative years. I spent about seven, eight years. And, and FQHCs are focused exactly that, right? It's some of the poorest, some of the most neediest patients themselves, and really trying to understand the barriers overall. So I think value-based care is definitely a key component for system approach to health equity. It's not the only one, but it is a key component. And part of it is from a simple performance perspective as well. If you take a look at, for example, controlling a, a certain metric and you try to get to a certain level, you, you apply general principles, you're going to get to a certain level and you tend to flatten out. If you don't understand the nuances of the subpopulations that make that up, the barriers that are being faced, you're not going to reach the kind of the next level of performance that get to 80 or 90%. But more importantly is you're missing a segment of the population that really needs care. They want the care. They may not understand how to access it. They may not understand where to go. So the question is, how do we identify the right populations and how do we outreach that? Providence, just before I arrived in 2020, placed a stake in the ground and essentially said, no more. And, you know, we're going to do better in this space. And it's not rhetoric. We've committed 50 million over five years to work towards health equity. How do we bake this into our system? How do we support outreach? How do we you know, approach this from the business model of sustainability and viability moving forward? Again, you know, it goes along with our mission for all who seek care. How do we take care of anyone, especially those that are poor and vulnerable? So at the start, each ministry submitted their programs. And after rigorous review with operational standards, we're implemented in 2020 and 2021. But it's more than that. When I take a look across the several strategies, what's common across the communities is really outreach and education. And it's not just about access. It's about understanding why this is important. 
how to access this overall. But what I like is going beyond this, is we've armed them with understanding about high blood pressure. And we've trained them what it is, how to talk about it. We've given them home blood pressure monitors. We've trained them on how to train the patients and educate the patients of when to call. And you know what's, it, what's truly kind of uplifting is the stories that come back. Patients starting to understand that they can care for themselves. Usually it's a cascading, it can be a cascading effect on their health. If I can handle this, I can handle something else. You know, it's interesting going back to the FQHC. So Dr. John Watson from Dartmouth worked with CMS for How Is Your Health? Big push back then was really looked at, assessed, you know, patients' confidence. And we found that we did a simple program of high blood pressure, which really focused on patient education. Some very simple visuals, some kind of education, some follow-up for those that we just weren't meeting. And what we found is the boosting confidence when we did a reassessment after three to six months. And that confidence then translated into less depression and better care overall for a directed program. So our goal is to kind of see the same effects. And we're starting to see the effects within our system from these, these concerted efforts. We're seeing the positive stories that are coming back and we're seeing movement within the systems. We track the disparity of care. And if you peg it to your best in class and you look at the performance, which will fall below that, we're seeing the, that gap narrow. And to us, that's what matters overall. And it is circular. It helps the, the system overall. As we continue to improve care overall, we continue to provide better care and outcomes as we have better kind of contractual performance. And again, more dollars that do come in from that perspective help us to kind of grow, support these programs and expand the programs to even more patients. So it's a very positive cycle of improvement overall by addressing and understanding the needs of you know, populations within your populations. It goes back to your first comments about understanding the data. And, and data is in incredibly important for us to do anything in this space overall. So this is one of my favorite areas of healthcare and aligns with our mission, again, to serve all who seek care, especially the poor and vulnerable. Thank you, Dr. Anders, for joining us today to discuss the very real challenges of value-based care, but also the very real opportunities in healthcare, such as health equity. And thank you to our listeners. If you want to share your thoughts on this topic or suggest a future healthcare strategies podcast topic, please reach out to me at jlapoint at intelligentmedia.com. That is J-L-A-P-O-I-N-T-E at X-T-E-L-L-I-G-E-N-T-M-E-D-I-A dot com. Finally, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a positive review if you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 